This is TalkZone.com, Internet Talk Radio. This is the one they're talking about. TalkZone.com. Last show we were talking about, um, like, the combinations of ancient societies, even the one in Indus Valley and then Easter Island, uh, half the world away, 13,000 miles, complete on opposite sides of the earth, and yet they had identical glyphs and scripts uh, of uh, like 174 of them. Mm-hmm. So, so they had the same language. Also, we were talking about how Egypt, the sun god, was named Ra, and in Polynesia, it's Ra, and Easter Island, it's Ray, R-E. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this... For- for those of you who have just joined us for the first time, our guest today is Frank Joseph, who's written The Lost Civilization of Lemuria, The Ark of the Covenant, and several other books. And we're talking to him about a bunch of history from different spots around the United States. So, Frank, well, yeah, I, I guess this may be close to the same era thousands and thousands of years ago. What do you, um, what do you make of the sudden appearance of the advanced Shang Dynasty in China. Well, the Shang Dynasty uh, is a very important uh, part of what we're talking about. The Shang Dynasty, for uh, our listeners not familiar with that, is the earliest historical dynasty in China. Uh, the very first uh, archaeological, archaeologically proven uh, society. There were doubtless uh, dynasties before, but uh, nothing much as really survived from them. And the Shang Dynasty uh, went out of existence uh, in 1200 B.C., which is really very bizarre because it had been around for several hundred years from at least 1500 B.C., and it had, had prospered for 300 years, in other words, longer than the United States, and it was a, the dominant power in China. And in 1200 B.C., it absolutely went out. It's just like the light was extinguished. There's no evidence whatsoever of major wars or revolutions or disease, famines, anything like that. And the society just winked out. Interestingly enough, uh, there are two clues in what happened to the Shang Dynasty. One is that the Shang records, the the, uh, the uh, records from the royal house of that time, are yes. preserved uh, to a large degree. And they talk about a large star circling the earth which is a th- spitting fire uh, at a the comet. earth and causing all kinds of disruptions. A comet? Yes, yeah. And that's, uh, that's how uh, historians uh, interpret this uh, star because it's described as a, a star with long hair. And that's a, uh, actually a common <laughs> way of describing a comet as a long-haired uh, star. That's right. And that what's also interesting is that uh, at the moment that the Shang Dynasty just winked out of history, 1200 B.C., right around 1200 B.C., that's also when there was a big surge in um, uh, civilization in this part of the world. In Mexico, there was a civilization called the Olmec, O-L-M-E-C. And around 1200 B.C., they didn't begin. They'd been around already for a long while. But in 1200 B.C., they experienced an extremely large uh, population influx, a sudden population surge, and their civilization also surged. That's also the time, uh, the beginning of Olmec uh, writing, the earliest known writing in the Americas is around 1200 B.C., and there's been a wonderful uh, uh, Chinese-American scholar by the name of uh, Dr. Xu, uh, X-I-U pronounced Xu, who's shown a tremendous amount of parallels between Shang Dynasty uh, glyphs and the Olmec glyphs, and he says that a number of them are com- totally identical, 
he's actually been able to translate a number of Olmec inscriptions uh, just by using uh, Shang Dynasty Chinese. So it would appear that the Chinese, the Shang Dynasty, made an unquestionable impact on early American civilization, notice, notably the uh, Olmec civilization, 1200 B.C. And that comet that is talked about is part of a world catastrophe, a global natural catastrophe that took place right at that time, in 1198 B.C., 1200 B.C., the same thing. Uh, archaeoastronomers and uh, now astrophysicists know that uh, the world was pushed, human beings were pushed to the brink of extinction at that time by this major catastrophe that overwhelmed the Western Hemisphere. You know, um, one of my latest um, clients, I'm a soul healer, and one of my latest clients, he, he's been stuck with a um, past life. And th this guy is just a sweet young man, but there's a part of him that's really angry not to be leading the transformation of the world, this past life in him. And we traced him down, and he's Olmec. And they they were very natural. And this young man that I'm working with, he has uh, instinctively great hostility for uh, the unnatural approaches that so much of the world is using and the wrong attitudes and uh, just uh, defying the sanctity of nature, working against it instead of working with it. But he was uh, he this these attitudes are based in his Olmec past life, and so this Shang Dynasty, which perhaps was from the Lemurian dynasty and then went to the uh what is it Mexican dynasty well the Mexican uh, we would call it a dynasty we call our early civilization called the Olmec o Olmec yeah they they began uh, well according to Zechariah Sitchin and others they began as early as 3000 BC and there's indication that that, that in fact happened but in 1200 BC that's when they got this great surge of population from where and where their their uh, literature began. Okay, so what I'm saying is, where they hooked in, where the Olmecs hooked in, it was very strong, and it looks like they went to the ancient Chinese, and that went to the Lemurians, I believe, is the lineage, perhaps. Um, they were very, very, very reverent to the earth, close to the earth, and worked with the earth, the, the natural ways that earth works, the natural laws. That was uh, Lemurian spirituality. Uh, the Lemurians did not have a religion. The word religion is related to the word regulate and uh, doctrine. <laughs> That's and, good. And, and, and dogma and things like that. And uh, Actually, religion as we know it is a very new thing. Right. Uh, that uh, until the, the fall of the Roman Empire, the fall of the Greco-Roman world, uh, you'd never, you did not have religion. You had um, cults. Um, it, it's impossible to imagine uh, that uh, the followers of Apollo would have been involved in a, a shooting war against the followers of Zeus, and yet uh, that's exactly, of course, what has happened amongst Christian denominations ever since uh, that phenomenon began and still continues to this day. There's tremendous hostility amongst uh, Protestants and Catholics and so forth, but that never happened in the ancient world because people in the ancient world were only interested in the spiritual experience, the mystical experience, they weren't interested in dogma or theology or any of that sort of thing at all. Yeah. And that the myths and so on of these various cults was just to highlight and to bring about that experience. And that's the same thing that was with the Lemurians. The Lemurians were a people who had no religion whatsoever but were highly spiritualized 
and followed the laws of life. Uh, it, they were not laid down as uh, Ten Commandments or a dogma, or a dogma or theses to be nailed up on doors and so on. Instead, uh, this was a, a a view of life, following the natural law of life. That's really good. Follow the laws of life. Yeah, and so it wasn't. There were no commandments. Uh, there were no demands, and that people were just uh, to observe nature and to obey obey by uh, living nature's laws, putting society into accord with natural law. Right. And some of those ideas, of course, were carried by these Lemurian, if you want to call them missionaries, I don't know if they're not exactly missionaries, but these Lemurian ideas certainly went both east and west and influenced the early development of what later became certainly Tibetan Buddhism. It's extremely clear, and I think I've, I've pointed that out in my book uh, about Lemuria, the, the descent of Tibetan Buddhism goes straight back to Lemurian mysticism. There, there's, n- there's no doubt about that. As a matter of fact, the uh, Tibetans even refer to one of their original people as the Mu. So I don't think there's any, it couldn't hardly be clearer than that. We don't have the same type of written records from the Olmecs, but they nonetheless uh, were impacted also by the Lemurian experience. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts. Our guest today, Frank Joseph, who's written The Ark of the Covenant and The Lost Civilization of Lemuria. You know, I have a list of 40, 40 um, uh, countries or tribes that um, have a history, a tradition of that would sort of speak into Lemuria, and I'll mm-hmm. just, I'll just these I think come out of your books, I believe, mm. but you know I scoured a bit because I, I wanted to, you know, tying together people like Noah that came or the big flood that happened mm-hmm. or the the uh, uh, influx of people came after a flood, mm-hmm. and I imagine some of this could be Atlantean and some of it's Lemurian, but mm-hmm. let me just go through a few of them. Uh, Melanesians, Aleutian, uh, Aleuts, uh, the Klamath and Modoc Indians, definitely. Uh, South American, uh, Colombian natives, um, America t- traditions, s- survivor of the Great Flood, let's see, Indonesia, Gobi Desert people, Yucatan, Ute, Zuni, mm-hmm. Mayan, Caribs of the Caribbean, um, Swahili, Mali, Pygmies, Indive Islands, Tibetan, Polynesian, Japanese, Australian, uh, Southern California, Chumish Indians, mm-hmm. Uganda, Philippines, Caroline Islands, Hawaiian, uh, Samoans, Egyptians, Hopi, Pueblo, New Zealand, New Zealanders, Thai, Chinese, Roman, Peruvian, Eastern Islands, Indian, Greek. Um, that's that's quite a bit, isn't it? Well, it, it points to what you were saying earlier, Keith, and that, that there was this global um, society. The ancient Greeks actually referred to it. They, they referred to an earlier time to a society that was uh, global in extent, and they referred to it as an ecumeny. Ecumeny means like a, the, a common society. It survives in the word ecumenical council in the mm-hmm. Catholic Church today, and which means um, sort of like a, 
Oh, a pan-Catholic idea, ecumenical. And so... Worldwide common? A worldwide... That's right, exactly. A worldwide community. That's the word I guess I'm looking for here. And what you're saying is you're picking up the part of the pieces of this global phenomenon that one time existed. And it was a phenomenon that was based... And it lasted a long time and was extremely successful because it was not based on conquest. It was not based on... uh, uh, economic uh, uh, primacy over somebody else or exploitation of the environment. It was instead trying to put human beings in accord with natural law. I've said that before, and that's the, the, the tenet of really this Lemurian spirituality. Okay. W- was it uh, Comet Enki that you were talking about, 1900 yeah. B.C., 1200 B.C.? Yes. Do you yes. think that took out the northern Africa, like the, where the Sahara Desert is? No, I don't think so. Uh, it, it was a completely different uh, astronomical phenomena. Uh, comet Enki was, and still is, a large and potentially dangerous comet even to this day. And that when it made a very close pass to the Earth in 1198 B.C., uh, it showered down a kind of a, a like an artillery barrage. Um, and these, some of these were very large meteorites, possibly even uh, small asteroids. Uh, the small, the two small asteroids, or one asteroid which split in half over the eastern Atlantic, was quite sizable. But nothing, uh, none of the material involved was large enough to have caused that change in the, in the desert. Okay. The change in the desert appears to be uh, a, a relatively gradual um, transformation that took place over thousands of years. Okay, break time. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber. Our guests today, Frank Joseph, Ark of the Covenant, and the Lost Civilization of Lemuria. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber. Our guests today, Frank Joseph, author of Ark of the Covenant and the Lost Civilization of Lemuria. So, Frank, we're talking about North Africa, Sahara, which is the desert now, but mm-hmm. uh, what made it a desert? Was it a gradual globi- global tilting? I don't know uh, really what would be the... I don't think anyone is quite sure of the mechanism for change there. All we do know is that until about three or 4,000 years ago, what we now see is the Sahara Desert was an extremely lush area, had forests, uh, had all kinds of animals, lakes, and so forth. And then uh, starting around uh, 3000 B.C., uh, it began to deteriorate uh, slowly over time until uh, about 1,000 or 2,000 years later it had become uh, been reduced to the desert that we see it today. Now, there was we do know that the time period for this is very interesting because around 3100 B.C., that's when this comet that I talked about earlier uh, made a very close pass to the Earth. It made four passes to the Earth, separated by uh, many, many centuries. And each time it came by, it had absolutely catastrophic impact on the surface of our planet. And this isn't anything which is speculative or channeled or anything like that. Yeah. It's uh, very well known and understood now. Uh, there was a symposium in 1997 in Cambridge, England, uh, in which the leading astronomers and geophysicists of the world got together and identified uh, that's, that's in fact what happened, that this comet had these four close passes to the Earth, and each time uh, it, it had absolutely disastrous impact. And uh, it's possible 
that around 3100 BC, when it made its first close path pass, that uh, it may have somehow set in motion those geologic forces which turned the northern half of uh, North Africa from a lush uh, plain into a desert. So, is there much volcanic evidence in that whole area? I mean, not volcanic evidence, no. Uh, like, uh, the, like uh, you know. Like uh, in Greece and Italy, they had some massive volcanoes. Oh, yes. Could, yeah. could a cloud have, you know, could they have just spewed and the wind gone that way and it just uh, suffocated everything out? I, I, there doesn't seem to be uh, a rapid change like that that took place in North Africa. But uh, what you're right, though, in saying that there was there's a tremendous evidence for massive burning uh, throughout the Near East and through uh, the Greek uh, Peloponnesus, the Balkans into southern Germany, the British Isles, all at the same time, around 1200 B.C., uh, huge evidence of massive burn-off. Uh, the entire Black Forest was incinerated at this time. The, uh, the population of England was uh, virtually eliminated. The human and animal population was wow. reduced to virtually nothing. Um Stonehenge was completely abandoned at this time. Uh, the burning that takes place uh, went all across the, the Near East into, and this, of course, what the Chinese talked about, tremendous amounts of, of burning going on. So this is, was the result of this very close pass uh, that we witnessed something uh, similar to it, although a lot less uh, catastrophic happened to the Earth, was when uh, a comet uh, Shoemaker-Levy in uh, 1994 uh, crashed into uh, Jupiter, Jupiter. Yeah. and uh, just one of those impacts on Jupiter would have been sufficient to snuff out all life on our planet. So it does show that uh, we live in a far more dramatic uh, area than uh, than mainstream uh, scientists told yeah. us before. Matter of fact, we live actually in a shooting gallery, and it's only a matter of time before... Uh, Something like this kind of <laughs> takes place again. <laughs> cosmic shooting gallery. <laughs> That's what we're in. We are in a cosmic shooting gallery, yeah. and we are we are the target. It's a instead of a Russian roulette, it's a cosmic shooting gallery. <laughs> That's what it is. So I guess um, the huge mass of Sa- or not Saudi, yeah Saudi Arabia. It's a huge desert. Is mm-hmm. part of the Sahara uh, drama. You think same same cause for it? I really can't. I I can't speak uh, to that authoritatively. I don't know. I've not considered that. That might be an entirely different geologic uh, problem. Yep. That well, I, I really can't address. I don't know. But I do know that the uh, North African desert, the Sahara Desert, uh, made a rather, rather uh, rapid transformation from uh, forest land to uh, desiccated uh, conditions that it is today. It took it took about uh, a little under two thousand years, and in geologic time, that's incredibly fast. Okay. Especially for an area that huge. Yes. Okay, you're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmé Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts, helping humanity to wake up one show at a time. When we come back, we're going to talk about the old Michigan copper fields, uh, ancient, and the uh, poverty point in Louisiana. What's that all about? Okay, and our guest today is Frank Joseph. He's written a number of books. He's an excellent writer, great information. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is one of them. The Lost Civilization of Lemuria is one. And upcoming in the spring is The Lost Civilization of America. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber. And our guest today, Frank Joseph, who's written the book, The Lost Civilization of Lemuria. And many other tantalizing historical books that go beyond what we thought history was about. Yeah, every time he gets a hold of one of your books, uh, Frank, he just devours it. And then it's it's written all the way through. You can't even hardly find a page that doesn't have red on it. No, <laughs> you good food for me there, Frank. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm very flattered. Thank you. It's very, very kind of you. So in Michigan, in a long, long time ago, before any one of the Caucasians of our knowing got to Michigan, they had huge copper mines there. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, that's one of the great scandals of archaeology, of course. <laughs> because the archaeologists have known about those copper mines for well over a 100 years. Uh, what the archaeologists do know is that starting at this interesting time period again, this is what they call an event horizon, around 3000 B.C., in other words, just when Egypt was new, somebody was here in North America. They were up at the what is known as the Kiwani Peninsula. This is Upper Michigan, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Yeah. In the uh, what is known also as the uh, Great Lakes region, the Northern Great Lakes region, mm-hmm. and whoever these people were, they excavated a huge mining operation, and in this mining operation, a minimum, a bare minimum of half a billion pounds of the world's highest grade copper was removed. That estimate has now almost been completely ditched. And it's considered to be uh, too conservative even for cataloging anymore. So we're talking of upwards of about uh, maybe a billion pounds of the world's highest grade copper, which was removed in a sophisticated mining operation enterprise starting in in 3000 B.C. The mining operations were all pit mines. In other words, you... You found out where the the vein of copper was. How they found out, how these ancient miners found out, no one to this day knows. They obviously operated some kind of technology which has not survived, and they found out where the copper vein was. When they were over the vein, they dug a pit mine, sometimes as much as 60 or more feet through solid rock. Hmm. And at the bottom of these mines, they excavated the copper. Some of the copper nuggets still exist, and they weigh as much as 60 tons. These people, whoever they were, operated machines. These machines, some of them still exist. They're not machines like we have today. They're run by electricity. One of the machines they have down there is a kind of a crib work in which the uh, copper nugget was hammered out of the rock face and put on the top of this crib and then levered to the top, almost like an accordion, to the top of the pit mine. There it was removed. The other part of this mystery is this half a billion or a full billion pounds of the world's highest-grade copper vanished. No trace of it or very little trace of it left in North America. The problem, of course, with this that the archaeologists don't like to face today is that if you look on the other side of the world at this time, something (laughs) known as the Bronze Age came into existence. And how did they get it from one place to the other? And bronze has copper in it. Without, Without copper, and I mean good copper, you're not going to have good bronze. Your bronze is only as good as your copper. And the deposits for copper in Europe have always been very paltry, and the quality has been inferior to North American copper. And yet we do know that the ancients in the Bronze Age made superb bronze weapons and tools. Bronze was the nuclear fission of its day. If you had an army 
that was only uh, composed of Stone Age weapons, and you were up against an army of bronze, uh, uh, enemy-wielding bronze weapons, you were going to lose. And uh, your tools were superior if you used bronze tools. And yet, this great Bronze Age, which erupted in Europe, and in Europe there is not sufficient copper to have made supply the tremendous bronze manufacture that took place, that the Bronze Age in Europe took place at exactly the same time parameters as the copper mining over here in North America, and the copper disappeared. Probably, so why, probably no connection at all. So why, <laughs> is this such, so why is this such a problem for the archaeologists? By the way, you're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, our guest today, Frank Joseph, author of The Ark of the Covenant. So why do archaeologists have a problem with this? They have a big problem with it because they keep insisting that nobody was here before Columbus. Yeah, Columbus oh, was geez. the first. Come on, let's get and out of the, the boxes. And, and they he's, got a tr- the, he's got a trophy for it, doesn't he? <laughs> Columbus is the first to America. He's got a big, big oh, trophy. Man. And they, they insist that a people that could build the Great Pyramid were somehow too stupid to build a ship that could bring them across the ocean. Yeah. And boy. the Polynesians, who were a people who had a low level of material culture, yet were great seafarers and in their open catamarans could go the full breadth of the Pacific. But apparently uh, the ancient Egyptians or uh, the ancient Greeks, they couldn't do the same thing. Well, well, it was a math problem. They just didn't have the math for it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, that's the thing about the great copper mining is that it is a tremendous achievement and that it certainly deserves to be known to every schoolboy, but it it isn't. It's, It's virtually unknown to most Americans. And yet it's a national park today. You can go up to a place called Isle Royale, which is this island, this elongated island in Lake Superior. And there you, they're telling you through the uh, signposts on the trails that you must stay on the trails because of all of the literally hundreds and hundreds of these ancient copper mines, which are still in existence. And uh, you can fall down them and you could, you could uh, get into trouble if you strayed into them, but you can still see them from the trail. Like a gravel slope? No, they, they go straight down into the ground. They're vertical pits. Oh, so they dug like a, a cliff. They just dug straight down. Straight down. And so, the technology to do that, uh, they just haven't been able to figure it still out. Still boggles them today. And so are they still mining it over there? No. Uh, uh, copper mining was, that was still the chief area for copper mining all the way up until the early part of the 20th century. But now uh, it's uh, found to be... Uh, that uh, it's easier and cheaper to get to- uh, copper now from South America than it is from Isle Royale. So, uh, Poverty Point in Louisiana, you know, we just think Louisiana and uh, cowboys and Indians and stuff like that. What's about Poverty Point? Poverty Point is the site for the oldest city in North America above the Rio Grande. And it's, uh, Poverty Point was the name of an old plantation there. And on this old plantation called Poverty Point, archaeologists as recently as the early 1950s doing an aerial survey found the outlines of this great city that had tens of thousands of people living there. This city was unlike any that has ever been seen in North America before or since. It had absolutely no precursors. There was nobody, nobody built anything like it before. It just burst into existence in 1500 B.C., and the remarkable thing about this city is it's built of concentric circles. And these concentric circles or ridges are interspersed with canals. Um, that's, in other words, you could visit every part of the city. and It was kind of like a, almost like Venice. Wow. And the, it was built on the south side of an artificial volcano. 
and the volcano, this mound, artificial volcano, at the top they uh, had their uh, cane fires, these very bright fires which were used for mortuary purposes. People cremated their dead. The remarkable thing about this site, the outstanding thing about it is, it's a mirror image of Plato's Atlantis. Plato talks about the city of Atlantis being on the south side of a volcano, Mount Atlas, and he says that the city was made of concentric concentric walls or artificial islands separated by canals. Uh, and the number five, the numbers five and six, were replete according to Plato all throughout the architecture. You go to Poverty Point today, uh, the numerals five and six appear everywhere in the alteration of its land rings and its water rings, and the dates for it are remarkable. Because in 1500 B.C., that represents the highlight of the zenith of Atlantean culture. In 1200 B.C., that is the destruction of Atlantis. That's the end of it, the yeah. last end of it. Yeah. In 1200 B.C., that is when Poverty Point experienced a major population surge. So obviously, ah. uh, these people, that some survivors from Atlantis, made it to the Gulf of Mexico, sailed up the Mississippi, and established a kind of a new Atlantis, as it were, a mini version, a smaller version, although not that much smaller. Yeah, they're a replica. They made a replica. There's no doubt about it. And they established it uh, in uh, northeastern Louisiana. You can go there and visit it today. People, This is the the great thing about uh, investigating all these things, Keith, is that uh, this isn't all just theory. You can go and see these places yourself. Or if you don't, if you can't get there, just go on the internet. If any of our listeners doubt anything that I'm saying, just take down some of these key words, uh, like poverty point, and go on the internet, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Um, where are these people in this civilization today? Well, uh, they were unable to, uh, survive, uh, for a prolonged period of time because they were a very small minority. In a, uh, in a, on a continent in which they were terribly outnumbered by the native, uh, populations. You may know, of course, that when the early Vikings uh, came to Vinland and Nova Scotia and so forth, that they had a very hard time with the Indians, that they, they had clashes with them and the Vikings were driven out. There were only a couple dozen Vikings and there were thousands upon thousands of Indians. So, all indications are that in, until the advent of gunpowder, uh, it was impossible for these other outside societies to make a permanent claim on North America. And that over time, the Atlanteans and so many of these other peoples that came to America, uh, they vanished through a process of intermarriage and through warfare, incessant right, warfare. Right. Does uh, Stonehenge have any kind of like these concentric... Um, um same structure? Yes, it does. That's an amazing thing. Stonehenge also shares the same time parameters, part of the uh, par- time parameters, with Poverty Point and Atlantis. Um, Poverty Point came into existence in 1500 B.C. That was the zenith of Atlantean power. 1500 B.C., Stonehenge went through its penultimate uh, developmental stage. Huh. In 1200 B.C., Stonehenge was... Uh, completely abandoned. It was shut down. And that's because in 1200 B.C., that's when this depopulation was suffered by the British Isles because of the uh, uh, impacts made by uh, Comet Enki as it came by. And uh, you can see in Stonehenge, the the numerals 5 and 6 incorporated in its architectural designs as well. So I would say that definitely uh, Stonehenge is an Atlantean work. And the reason why 
the Atlanteans built in these circles and used these numbers was because they were trying, as we mentioned earlier in the program, they were trying to mirror the movements of the heavens and the circular movements of the heavens were employed in creating a similar um, sort of a mindset here on Earth. Mm-hmm. The leading uh, mythological figure of the Atlanteans from whom they got their name was Atlas. And Atlas is this figure that most people have seen as a man supporting the sphere of the heavens on his shoulders. Uh, over time, it's, they've changed it from the sphere of the heavens to the earth. Well, that's not the way it was originally. Uh, in the ancient world, he was holding up the sphere of the zodiac or the sky on his shoulders. And that was, in other words, the, the bond or the union between human beings and the celestial uh, other world, as it were. So he w- he exemplified the necessary connection between the earth and the, the celestial realms. That's right, bringing order to earth as it right. were. In Very Greek nice. mythology, Atlas is uh, considered the founder of astronomy and astrology. Right. So before we are done with our lovely show here with you, Frank, uh, I want to go to giants. Like I'm always curious about the giant of Rhodes, the Titans uh, of um, Tahiti, and uh, even America, mm-hmm. the ancient giants. Uh, you want to talk about with the big statue of Rhodes, what was that? Well, the, the statue of Rhodes wasn't supposed to be a giant. It was supposed to be a representative of the god Helios or the god Apollo, the god of the sun. And uh, it wasn't meant to be actually a representation of a god, but it, the statue was built in a great size, of course, to exemplify his greatness. Uh, but there were real giants here in North America. There's no doubt about that. These were human beings, men and women of exceptional size. In, in North America, they have the bones of that? They have the bones of these people. They still exist. Oh, my. How they, big? Oh, uh, well over seven feet. <laughs> these are common. These were, it was common to find people uh, like six... 10, 6, 11, and uh, 7, uh, 7, 2, 7, 3. I think the tallest one was 7 feet 4 inches tall. Mm. And uh, this race of people, which the archaeologists call the Adena, uh, were an exceptionally tall people. And um, there are numerous Native American traditions of these giants who eventually were overwhelmed and exterminated uh, in a, a battle by called the Falls of the Ohio. And this is a, a, a tradition which is found in many Native American tribes, and I talk about it in quite some detail in this new book that's coming up, The Lost Civilization of America. But the Adena, they called themselves probably the, the Ali or the Alaweg or Aleg, something like that, we don't know. Uh, the archaeologists refer to them as the Adena, and they, their burials still exist. They were a huge people, both men and women, uh, well, well over six feet tall. Wow. Wow, that's just amazing. So this I don't is, know if they were actually giants in the sense they were, right. we might think in fairy tales, but to see an entire uh, group of people who were uh, seven feet tall and in excess uh, would be uh, very impressive. So these were in the Ohio area? They were. Um, they settled mostly in the Ohio Valley. However, they extended their, their power, their culture, from the Mississippi River all the way to the uh, eastern seaboard and uh, in many parts of the South. They spread uh, over mostly the entire eastern half of the United States, you can say, uh, minus, uh, say, from about oh Kentucky north to Wisconsin 
and then from the Mississippi to New York. That's it was a very huge area. This is one of the lost civilizations. The That's Adena right. introduced uh, agriculture. There was no agriculture in North America until the Adena introduced it. They built stone pyramids. Uh, the, the pyramids were built out of uh, earth and then covered with a uh, great uh, stone. They uh, were great iron workers. They had iron foundries. Huh. Uh, they were remarkable people. They introduced uh, uh, dentistry. Um, it's remarkable people. That's amazing. Okay, you're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts helping humanity wake up one show at a time, Monday through Saturday, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on CRN. We want to thank you a lot for staying with us tonight for two hours. Don't go away. We have four minutes to go. Our guest is Frank Joseph, who's written Ark of the Covenant and the Lost Civilization of Lemuria. And welcome back to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmy Amber. Our guest today, Frank Joseph. So we've been talking to Frank off the air about this adventure he's thinking about doing of going and getting an expedition to find... Actually discovering, physically discovering Atlantis. Yeah. So if you think there isn't much chance of it to be there, why do you want to go do it? Well, I think that there is a chance. But uh, I would say the chances are probably, well, I don't know what they are, I can't tell, but they're remote. But there is nonetheless a chance. And the reason I want to do it, to answer your question, is the technology exists now, and it should be applied. I and, see. Uh, there hasn't been the right kind of stuff before now. No, technology needed to rise to this level. And uh, the other thing is the reason that Atlantis has not been found is because I don't believe it's been looked for in the right place. The last Atlantis oh. expedition took place a few years ago, and the fellow went looking out in the uh, eastern Mediterranean. And I, I don't believe that that's <laughs> where it would be. And no. you think it's where? I believe that uh, just I follow Plato. And Plato said it's beyond the Straits of Gibraltar. And if you look on an undersea map, uh, just where Plato said, just beyond the Straits of Gibraltar, you find a uh, configuration of sunken mountains which are very similar to his description of Atlantis. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't, uh, you know, they called Plato Plato because Plato means a uh, big broad head. You know, it, it, it described his head. Huh. And um, from all that I studied Plato, he's not a guy to BS you. If he writes something down, it's happening. Well, uh, you would be completely supported by uh, all of the classical theorists uh, who have said that the basis of Plato's philosophy is telling the truth. Telling the truth. That's him. To a T. You know, if I would trust anybody to tell the truth, I would trust Plato. It was like his religion. That was like his religion, exactly. It wasn't just a moral uh, precept for him. No. It was actually his religion. Exactly. Yeah, it was very important. So, yep. like, Iroquois, Cherokee, Algonquian, where, where did these Indian tribes come from? Well, they're a mix, actually. Some of them, as the archaeologists say, there's no doubt their ancestors migrated across a land bridge from Siberia to Alaska and filtered down through North America. However, others did not. And now the latest DNA testing has shown that the Algonquins and the Cherokee and a number of other tribes like the Ojibwa, they definitely have European uh, DNA, and that this is European oh. DNA which precedes any modern arrivals during pioneer times. So we have... European 
some of the tribes are, are of European descent. Partially. They are mixed European descent. And, and that European, that mixing could have only taken place many thousands of years ago. We're talking like 9,000 or more right. years ago. Well, probably the car, uh, the copper workers. <laughs> that, that, actually, that's correct. The tradition of the copper, uh, copper miners is with the Menominee Indians, and they say that after, uh, the Menominee Indians, uh, their ancestors, they, some intermarried with them and others got involved in a war with them and uh, exterminated them, but some of them intermarried with them, interbred with them. That's always the case that, that seems to have happened. Yep. There was a certain level of crossing, and then there was, of course, diseases and other things that make it very difficult for a population to endure. Isn't that something? Well, we're learning something here, aren't we? Well, we're learning that what has happened in the past is happening now and will happen again. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hey, thanks, Frank, for two hours of your time. As always, we love it. And we well, love you. The pleasure you. is all mine. It, it, you're both wonderful friends, and I hope we can do it again sometime. We indeed will. Thank yep. you once again, The Lost Civilization of Lemuria. And your book coming out is what? Called The Lost Civilization of America. Ah. Coming out in the spring. Mm-hmm. You good. have a good night. And good night to both of you. Good we'll luck with talk everything. Talk to you again. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Hey, thanks you guys for joining us tonight. We hope that you found it as fascinating as we do. We're addicted to this stuff. It's interesting we stuff. We love it. Now, come on. You can do it. Stretch into the greater you. We love you guys. Thanks for being with us.